All right, the cryptocurrency podcast. I intended this podcast to be strictly for the layman, a kind of an introductory course in cryptocurrency, a, a cryptocurrency 101, if you will. But because of the nature of the complexities of cryptocurrency, we got into a lot of moderate and expert level um, issues within cryptocurrency. So, this episode has a little bit of everything for everyone. It has a lot of information for people new to cryptocurrency that want to learn more. It has some information for uh, the people that are more moderate, have a moderate understanding of cryptocurrency. You have to get through some things. Uh, my guests are tremendous, uh, but for the, about the last 40 minutes of the episode, there might be something for the layman, there might be something for the expert. Real, realistically, understanding the entire crypto space is complicated. I hope this episode helps you. It's all about people learning a little bit more, becoming a little bit more curious, taking those steps towards holding, using cryptocurrency, not just standing on the periphery, on the sidelines, watching everybody else use what isn't going away, what could possibly be the future of money. So that's the intention of this podcast. I hope you enjoy it. Think of a blockchain as like a triangle with three different characteristics. You have security, decentralization, and speed slash scalability as the three points of your triangle. Let's imagine a wallet as a concept of a vault. So within a vault, you could have a thousand safety deposit box, right? And when you have a company like Coinbase, they essentially control the vault. The Profit potential with Bitcoin is still higher than with most coins out there. This is where a little bit of complexity comes in. Mainstream media is dominated by the right and the left. The majority in the middle are left without a voice. You've reached the Conservative Hippie Podcast, a common sense look at life, the universe, and everything. Here's your host, Jay Frat, the Conservative Hippie. I had the special honor of interviewing two crypto experts for this podcast. First, we will speak to Sean Cover about the complex cryptocurrency market and seek insights into what these digitally created blockchain coins are and why there are so many of them clogging up our intellectual bandwidth. Second, I will bring Tian Volmerans onto the show to discuss how to buy, hold, and transfer cryptocurrency. After this show, it is my expectation that a layman should have a great understanding of the crowded crypto space and be able to operate within it with confidence. Okay, first, let's bring in Sean Cover. Sean Cover is a monetary historian. He has an audio newsletter on Substack called Questioning Money. He also has something called the 808 Insights newsletter dedicated to the cryptocurrency space. Links to both of those will be in the show notes. 
Sean can be found on Twitter at Sean Cover. That's S E A N. And as an added bonus, Sean has a special f- digital form he has created, and we're going to link to it in the show notes where you can contact him directly and ask him any lingering questions that you might have. He's an amazing resource. Let's get to Sean and his insights on the cryptocurrency space. Hey there, Jay. Thank you for having me here. I have a rudimentary understanding, and I'm like a lot of people. Okay, I get this blockchain. I understand Bitcoin. I understand the mining. I understand the way the blockchain verifies transactions. But now, every time I get to this this point of comfortability with Bitcoin, new language comes about. There's new innovation. And so now the space has become crowded. Now I hear about privacy coins and Decred and DeFi and Litecoins and Lumens. Oh, my. So help, help us understand this cryptocurrency space from a broader perspective, because it it seems like the field is getting clogged with all this new information, and a lot of normies, like myself, um, end up drowning in all of the information out there. Right. So when Bitcoin was first released in 2009, and since then, the blockchain as the backbone of the cryptocurrency really was is only used for one purpose in bitcoin which is to be money the purpose of bitcoin is solely to be money what other people have done since then is that they have realized or are trying to use a blockchain to do other things besides money to use the blockchain to solve problems in finance or try to do things in supply chain or AI or a whole bunch of areas where blockchains have never been used before. And that has led to this overcrowding in the space that you are seeing. And a couple of things that are really important to note here is that a lot of these things are unproven or have no successful working product yet. So The blockchain has shown that it works for being money, like what Bitcoin does. But now you have these thousands of other people that are experimenting to see whether a blockchain can be used for other purposes. So that's sort of where you see this saturation of the market coming from. Let me let me use a specific because I've researched uh, Ripple XRP and I and I'm very understanding of the Ripple blockchain technology. And from from your answer that you just gave, I think that Ripple is a is an excellent um, example of what you're talking about. So Bitcoin, if we're going to talk about it as as purely money, so you know it's digital currency that's created through this mining process. And now you're talking about all these altcoins. Where is that? relationship between the experimentation of blockchain technology and now this coin that represents it. Uh, the, the SEC has sued Ripple and said that, no, you don't have a coin, you have an investment vehicle, and therefore um, it's illegal the way that you're out in the marketplace selling it. And from your answer, it sounds like the SEC has a point. How how are these coins then related to the blockchain technology? That's a really good question. And it's a really important concept for 
a lot of newcomers to cryptocurrency to understand because there are thousands of cryptocurrencies out there, but there are not thousands of legitimate attempts to build something new in finance or technology with the blockchain. A very large portion of the cryptocurrencies out there are really get-rich-quick kind of schemes by their creators, where people have created a cryptocurrency and are essentially using it to get people to invest in the cryptocurrency to make the the creators of the cryptocurrency rich. Um, and up until 2017, that was really the norm for a lot of these altcoins. So you may have heard the phrase utility token before, which is when a blockchain is supposed to do some sort of thing and they have a token as part of the the project. But if you really look closely and you really try to understand it, the the cryptocurrency, the token, it serves no actual purpose. It doesn't accrue value. It doesn't represent shares of a company or anything like that. It really sort of just exists for no reason. And it's really only in the last two or three years that you're starting to see decentralized teams create new cryptocurrencies and new projects where the cryptocurrency itself is actually carefully thought out and designed in a way so that the cryptocurrency is actually supposed to accrue part of the value of whatever the project is supposed to be. And what I want to get back to, though, for for Ripple, for example, for XRP, that is an example of a cryptocurrency that is very well known by a lot of people, but that serves no real purpose. Um, there's really nothing useful that the XRP cryptocurrency does. And it was really just created by the company Ripple to enrich the company Ripple. Um, you know, 100 billion XRP were created at inception by the creators of Ripple. And every month, 1 billion of them are released from their escrow locked account that they're then allowed to sell onto the market. So what Ripple does, and they're an example of what a lot of cryptocurrencies do is they create this whole hype machine and this whole narrative um, and marketing and you know community building to convince people like you and me that their cryptocurrency is a world-changing thing but really behind the scenes the cryptocurrency is is more like vaporware than it is a real decentralized um distributed ledger technology that has the potential to change the world. So I just want to end with this point that newcomers really need to be careful when you see that there's a thousand cryptocurrencies out there, because even today, the vast majority of them are either not going to exist in five years or, you know, have no hope of actually um, doing something meaningful, regardless of whether their price goes up or down. Okay, let's now we, we got into a little bit of a specific. Let me try to bring it back uh, to a more broader concept because a lot of laymen's are now hearing these terms like decred, DeFi, uh, privacy coins. 
where are what are all these concepts and how do they relate to again the original concept that bitcoin is currency it was meant to be money and now we've got these things that are that are bringing in some sort of privacy it's it's very confusing uh, how the blockchain and a coin has anything to do with you know freedom and privacy help us understand the connection so bitcoin is pseudonymous right now which means that when you send money to a bitcoin wallet you send it to this long string of numbers and letters so there's no name attached to a bitcoin wallet or address so in that way it sounds anonymous but the system itself is completely open and transparent so there is so you could go on the internet and search one of these wallet addresses that you have either sent money to or your own that you have received. And because the Bitcoin blockchain is public and open and visible to everybody, you can actually see the entire transaction history that has ever occurred using that Bitcoin address. So that actually presents a privacy problem in Bitcoin in a lot of ways. So. For example, if you buy Bitcoin on Coinbase and you send that Bitcoin to your own wallet address, now that Coinbase has that first address that you sent your money to, they're now going to be able to follow your funds no matter where they go and track exactly where they are. So Bitcoin is not actually very private. When you introduce a privacy coin like Monero, you can't search where the money is in the same way that you can do for Bitcoin. So it makes it so that you can't trace transactions between senders, which is a very cool and novel thing that has real value, but there are other negative trade-offs that go with that as well. Is there value in the privacy? It, it, it almost sounds shady, like uh, like uh, Monero's made for the dark net um, person that goes on BitTorrent and 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 you know does nefarious things. I, I see out there the one I've never understood is Bitcoin Cash. I mean, it, it almost seems like a ripoff of Bitcoin in some sort of uh, infringement kind of way. Where, where is where is the value? that Bitcoin is kind of the first. It's the big dog. It's the one that's meant to be a currency. It has utility to it. Um, a lot of people understand it. Now we've got all of these altcoins and these alternative philo philosophies coming in with their blockchain technology. Wh where do you see the value in a general perspective to these altcoins and these alternative concepts? Great question. So... There are There is value for some of these things, but what you really have to think about is sort of the inherent trade-offs of a blockchain system. So in 20 in mid in summer 2017, a group of people did create this Bitcoin cash cryptocurrency, which is exactly what you said. It's a ripoff of Bitcoin. Now, the Bitcoin code is open source. It's part of the open nature of Bitcoin. Anyone can go on the internet and essentially spin off a Bitcoin because the code is available. The reason that the Bitcoin Cash people 
forked off, it's called a fork when you spin off the blockchain um, of Bitcoin, is because there was a debate within the Bitcoin community over whether they should increase the block size, which means you could fit more transactions in each 10-minute block, which makes the fees that are paid cheaper. The opponents to this said that doing that, increasing the block size, would make the network more centralized. And that is the crucial dynamic at play here. Think of a blockchain um, as like a triangle with three different characteristics. You have security, decentralization, and speed slash scalability as the three points of your triangle. Every blockchain can only be two out of those three things. There has not been a successful design that is all three of scalable, decentralized, and secure. So what Bitcoin does is it chooses decentralization and security as by far its most two important points. And the reason that Bitcoin focuses on those two things is to you know, to be an entirely decentralized network, to be the equivalent of the internet for money. So when you see that a coin like Bitcoin Cash, this is what it wanted to do, it wanted to be more fast and scalable, in order to do that, it had to reduce the decentralization aspect of Bitcoin. And that's sort of where uh, the motivation behind the spinoff came from. Now, a lot of people in Bitcoin, and the reason why Bitcoin Cash did not successfully um, overtake Bitcoin or anything, is because most people who get involved in Bitcoin and really understand the protocol and ideologically agree with it, believe that decentralization is the single most important factor of Bitcoin's success. And they are not willing to... Or, the, the users and the market itself decided that that was more important than a temporary scaling solution. Um, so when you have something like Monero, which is a privacy coin, um, you get the privacy with that Bitcoin does not have, but you sacrifice actually some speed and some security in order to implement those privacy features because of certain behind the scenes things that make the blockchain kind of big and unwieldy. Um, so what I, what I want to get to here, though, what I want to end it with, and I will say just about your point about the shadiness of Monero, is that I certainly am someone that believes that financial privacy is one of the most important things that any good democracy should have. And it is a real concern that our financial privacy is being eroded um, with the increased surveillance culture that's sort of naturally been occurring with the ascendance of technology. In, in the modern age where all digital transactions are surveilled and permissioned and people can be cut off from the digital banking system at the um, at the snap of a finger, you know, m super minor tangent, but in Hong Kong a couple of years ago for the Hong Kong protests, the free Hong Kong protests, if, if protesters used their phone to pay for subway fare to attend a free Hong Kong protest through the WeChat app, those protesters were later rounded up and arrested. And that's sort of the natural thing that happens when financial transactions can be surveilled. So I am a strong supporter of making digital transactions more like me handing a dollar bill to you than 
swiping a credit card and having it go through the whole system. So I, I firmly reject, um, you know, that privacy can be bad. Where we were going in the original question, I think you were trying to answer in the broader the broader context was the utility of these alternative coins. So one thing about the Bitcoin Cash and Monero is that those two are really also just trying to be currencies. They're just trying to be different types of money. And Decred is another coin that's really just trying to be money. When you hear about DeFi and smart contracts and some of the stuff that is happening with Ethereum, that is when you sort of move beyond just the money function of cryptocurrency. And it's worth taking a point if you're uh, if you're new to this space to just stop at first and maybe just focus on understanding the mechanics and the why and the how of the money portion of cryptocurrency because it is a big step for a lot of people to be able to conceptualize the idea of a non-state money that in itself is kind of a hard leap for a lot of people to take. And then when you get into the idea of digital scarcity and a fixed monetary policy, it can be difficult to really grasp what's going on. And so then if you jump right in at the same time to other uses of a blockchain like decentralized finance and smart contracts, um, it's really easy to get confused with a lot of these different things and what they mean. So with DeFi, for example, which means decentralized finance, certain teams and projects are coming up with ways to use a blockchain to mimic certain financial services that we already see in real life. So there might be an example of sort of like a bank on the blockchain, except instead of a company like a bank, you can take out a loan of cryptocurrency all through all done through computer code without a company and and sort of this kind of financial services thing. So that's where these other applications of blockchains um, use cryptocurrencies as sort of a integral part of um, some function other than money. If I'm going to bring it back, and kind of challenge you a little bit is I have studied the XRP um, and the Ripple, and and they're already signing contracts. And what it's meant to be is an exchange like the SWIFT exchange, but instead of SWIFT taking three days uh, to transfer money into an account, um, the Ripple technology is a little bit more instantaneous. The way Where I get confused is the SEC says that the coin really is an investment in the company. And as you pointed out, they just created all of these coins that enrich themselves. There, it seems like everybody is correct, but if you invest in something like Ripple XRP, you still have, um, uh, if the SEC is correct, you have a share in the company. Um, if, it's, if, it, if they drop the lawsuit or it's settled in some way, where does that value of the coin, how are we going to bridge this gap in the future of this, this created coin versus this investment vehicle? Yeah, so one thing that I think is important is that, or one key thing that separates 
um, where there's a clear line between this stuff is that if a company, if a business is issuing a cryptocurrency, what the SEC is telling us is that from this point forward, and Ripple did it early, so they're, you know, that's the reason why they're in this now. They were admittedly quite early to the cryptocurrency party. But if you are a company that creates a cryptocurrency, you probably need to register it with the SEC first. It's not going to be okay to just release a cryptocurrency if you're a company. So what teams are doing now is that it's not a company that's releasing a cryptocurrency. It's a group of anonymous developers that are in different portions of the world that um, you know are joining together through open source code to release projects like this. Or if there are more formalized teams, it's not under the creation of a company like Ripple. It's just a bunch of people who get together and release something out onto the web without directly benefiting from it themselves the way that you can look to an organization like Ripple as having directly profited and benefited from the creation of XRP, which is partially what the SEC is claiming. Um, now, Ripple has a bunch of really good lawyers, and they have been earning a lot of money from the sale of XRP. So, you know, they might win their case for sure, even though there are very good cases against um, against Ripple. Uh, they, very well, they very well may win their case. Um, but really, it's that aspect of, is there a company that issued a cryptocurrency uh, could be the line between whether it's a investment contract under the under the eyes of the SEC or not. Um, and la the last thing I'll add to that is that a blockchain is essentially a database that is slow and inefficient. Um, the one and only thing that a blockchain lets you do that a normal database does not let you do is be decentralized. So blockchains are usually, or they're not fast compared to centralized databases, um, and they're inefficient. So if your blockchain use does not require decentralization, then it really doesn't need a blockchain in the first place, and it's unlikely that it's a good use for a blockchain. So if I look at something like supply chain is a is an industry that a lot of people want to throw on the blockchain to track, you know, their lettuce from South America to Texas or whatever. But um, there's really not many good uses for a blockchain that can be by a company because uh, blockchains are just worse versions of databases that let you do things decentralized. Thank you for following me into the weeds there. Uh, if I could just rotate back, it was very interesting the way that we're talking about decentralized uh, currency, and you came up with the answer that that creators, developers are coming up with is decentralization of the creation. Um, it's it, it. Your head starts to spin at some point uh, when you're trying to grasp all of these different concepts. It's like a, a 3D model, if you will. You can go up, you could go down, you could go sideways. It's true. Sean, before we let you go, what cryptocurrency do you think people should take a closer look at that you like a lot? So I will answer that in a second with an altcoin. But I think that people really should, first and foremost, start to really understand 
Bitcoin more because the profit potential with Bitcoin is still higher than with most coins out there. And I know a lot of people look at Bitcoin at $50,000 and they say, wow, that's too expensive. How can anyone afford a full Bitcoin anymore? They can't. The moment has passed. But what I want to impart is that the reason that one Bitcoin looks so expensive is because there are only 18 million Bitcoin, you know, based on the protocol. The network value of Bitcoin, the market cap, which is the supply of the coins times the current price equals the overall market value, is about $900 billion right now. So Apple is like a $2.2 trillion company and shares of Apple are like 120 bucks. Um, Apple has 17 billion shares of Apple stock that make up its market cap. If there was 17 billion Bitcoin, the price of a Bitcoin would be about $50 right now. But the market value of Bitcoin would still be the same. So what, I, what I'm trying to get to here is that there's really a unit bias with Bitcoin because the circulating supply is so low at 18, at 18 million. Um, so with a $900 billion market cap, 50,000 Bitcoin out of 18 million is the same thing as $50, billion, $50 Bitcoin out of 18 billion supplied. Uh, $1,000 buys you the same amount of Bitcoin in both circumstances, because what you're buying with Bitcoin is a percentage of the overall supply, not anything to do with an individual unit. Uh, there's really just a psychological bias where we see 50,000 Bitcoin and it makes it expensive, but it's really not true. It's really just all in our heads. What you have to look at is the market cap. And the reason I bring that up is because the market cap for gold is about $10 trillion. So about 10 times what Bitcoin is at right now. So if Bitcoin reaches the market cap for gold, then it will be about $500,000 per Bitcoin. And while that sounds high, gold is an asset that almost nobody owns. You probably can't name a single person who owns gold. Gold is a relatively fringe asset that doesn't really occupy much space in someone's mind. So $500,000 Bitcoin means that Bitcoin is as fringe as gold, that in, a few, that in 25 years, if Bitcoin is $500,000, it's really just going to be a fringe asset that people don't really think about more. Um, and so I think that $500,000 is a low estimate for the price of a Bitcoin. I am a believer that it is a better form of money. And I think you can make the case pretty easily that Bitcoin is a 10x improvement on gold. So I am certainly a guy who thinks that we're going to see million dollar Bitcoin sometime, probably, no, not probably, very possibly this decade. And that Bitcoin is something that is going to out last you and me and the European Union and possibly even the United States. You know, if you get into the anarchy, uh, you know, uh, uh, the, this book, The Sovereign Individual, is a really good book that sort of concludes, um, you know, the rise of the information age is going to lead to the inevitable fall of the nation state as a gathering mechanism. So I think people need to pay more attention to Bitcoin. I know money seems uninteresting to a lot of people and you want to get lost in the um, 
get lost in the altcoins that are promising big and fancy things. But money is really the biggest market of them all. And I still see Bitcoin as the best risk and the best reward out of um, out of all the cryptocurrencies out there. You know, and I'll wrap it up by just going to an altcoin really quickly. Some of the decentralized finance stuff on Ethereum is kind of cool. And it does seem like there's going to be some uses for um, alt cryptocurrencies. Like, I think that we're going to see the first self-driving bank within the decade. So like a bank with no bank um, built on a blockchain, probably using Ethereum. So um, the DeFi space is big. And if you look at coins like Aave and Compound, those are two that I that I think will see a lot of growth and a lot of smart money pouring into um, over the next couple of years. But of course, uh, that is not financial advice, and I am not a financial advisor. Hey, have you ever thought about a vaporizer to consume your dry herb? It's the least damaging way to enjoy your flower. A vaporizer takes 99% of the carcinogens out of the smoking process. And I know the perfect vaporizer just for you. Smoke and Jays developed the perfect vaporizer over years of trial and effort. Click on the link in the show notes. It will take you to the smokeandjays.com perfect vaporizer page. And a 15% discount will automatically be applied to your purchase. It's palm-sized for portability, and it has three different temperature settings to customize your vaporization experience. It truly is the perfect vaporizer. This is John Devon, The Foundation. I want to encourage you to spread the love and share the conservative hippie podcast We are building this community one person at a time. All right, now let's get into the meat and potatoes of this particular episode. Um, When I started out, I always wanted this to be for the layman, somebody who is interested in cryptocurrency uh, but didn't know where to start. It seems as I've gotten further along in this adventure in cryptocurrency in this podcast, uh, it might be more for the person with a moderate understanding of cryptocurrency. I hope this information benefits you. Before we get into my second interview, I just wanted to preface it with a few with a few things, and that is uh, the easiest way to get into crypto, cryptocurrency now is through the exchanges. Um, there are multiple exchanges that I would consider uh, mainstream and easy to use. There's Coinbase, there's Binance, If you pronounce it Binance, that's just fine. There's Kraken, and these exchanges allow you to trade your fiat currency for the cryptocurrency. But there's still a level of understanding that we need um, that this podcast is all about. I was into Bitcoin many years ago, but I found the wallet technology was terribly confusing to someone like myself that has rudimentary knowledge of software applications. I use them, but I don't understand them. Now, recently, platforms have popped up that describe themselves as exchanges. I use Coinbase, 
And despite the huge fees for crypto transactions, it has allowed me to get into the crypto space with ease. But now I am still faced with the same confusion regarding my wallet within my Coinbase account and all these important keys and how I maintain or use them. I'm not alone. There are a ton of people who are interested in cryptocurrency, but the confusing technology steps required keep them from investing. That's at the heart of the goal of this podcast. If I were to try to draw an analogy uh, with Bitcoin or cryptocurrency and something that everybody understands at this point, I would, I would try to draw the analogy with stocks, even though they're not stocks, they're currency. You don't owe shares in a company. But in a lot of ways, it is a true analogy. Um, in the, let's look at Coinbase and let's look at E-Trade and, and the similarities between the two. I buy and sell stocks on E-Trade. I never physically hold the paper that says that I own the stock, right? E-Trade handles all of that for me. Coinbase is very similar. These exchanges that have popped up are very similar in the fact that you use them to buy and sell, and they keep track of all your transactions, and you have an account with them. Very similar technology. But because Bitcoin and these cryptocurrencies are currency and not shares in a company, you do want to hold them. You want to use them. It's a utility more so than shares in a company, which is more of an investment. Um, it's, an, it's an interesting uh, parallel uh, in the dichotomy between the two things. So in some ways, it can be a good analogy, even if it's completely wrongheaded. Now, Let's bring Tian Volmerans on the show. Tian Volmerans is the head of product at Revix.com, R-E-V-I-X.com. It is a crypto platform for investing. Um, I, I almost look at it as a money manager in some ways um, that you can invest with them, and then they go and invest your money in different pots. Uh, a really interesting website. Not available in the United States yet, but keep an eye on it. As always, I've got links to my guest in the show notes, so you'll be able to click on it, check it out for yourself. Tian, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me, Jay. You bet. I'm excited to have you on and extract some of this knowledge that you have. Let's first start with these cryptocurrency exchanges and wallets and all these terms that sometimes muddy the water and complicate issues for um, the layman who's looking to get into cryptocurrency. Yeah. So, I mean, it it is really difficult. Um, and I think exchanges have kind of filled a lot of the gaps between the wallets that you might have been exposed to a few years ago and the ones that are there today. But there are these sort of ideas and concepts that are kind of difficult. So you have and I'll just run through a couple of terminologies and then we can sort of dive into them if you like. But you've got wallet, you've got private key, you've got a public key, you've got uh, fees, you've got, um, you know, all of these different kind of concepts that you have to wrap your head around to do something simple like accept some money or, or send it. So, um, you know, I think when Bitcoin was kind of invented, let's say, um, there was a lot of skeuomorphism, which is basically taking one idea that exists in the real world and sort of translating that digitally. 
So a good example of that is wallet, right? Like you, you think of a wallet, you think, okay, money goes into it. So that's like really, really easy. But if we kind of step back from wallet, um, there's like if let's imagine a wallet as a concept of a vault. So within a vault, you could have a thousand safety deposit box, right? And when you have a company like Coinbase, they essentially control the vault. And you have, as your login details, a key to a safety deposit box. Now, kind of the problem with that is that just like a bank, they could kind of go, well, we're not going to service you anymore, and they shut the vault. Now, if you have your own wallet, it's kind of the same thing where you control the vault and you control the key to the safety deposit box. I think the complication or the complexity comes in where you have a public key and a private key, and this is a really bad use of skeuomorphism where a private key is kind of like the key to the vault and the public key is the key to the safety deposit box or the number of the safety deposit box rather. So it's fine to show someone what number your safety deposit box is, but it's definitely not fine to give them access to the key to the vault. So I, in the case of keys, with Coinbase, you would be given what is known as a, a public key. So that's the key that you can share freely and no one would ever get access to your funds. But it's kind of like a weird terminology for it because you wouldn't, you know, in casual conversation, you wouldn't go, oh, well, here's my here's my public key. Uh, so another term that's sort of become a little more accepted is address for this, which is also kind of a weird one because all that it is is it, if it was you and me just chatting, it would be my account number, right? Like, here's my account number. You can send money to it. So so that's the first thing. When we look at, at keys on an exchange, you would only ever get a public key or an address. A private key is something that uh, is probably for a more advanced kind of user, someone who wanted to custody their crypto themselves. Let's try to uh, review some of the terms that you said. You, we've got public keys, we've got private keys, we've got a wallet. For a layman like myself, I've had both a wallet where I had a private key and the warning was, don't ever lose this private key, don't ever give it out. And then I've had uh, an account on an exchange where there's no road signs or anything onto what's pub public, what's private, and, and it kind of gets confusing for people. How about this? Let's, let's try to go back to that wallet concept. I loved the explanation that you gave for our imagination of a safe deposit box within a vault. So what would you recommend? What, what is the norm for people who are used to working with cryptocurrencies? As I would imagine, you don't hold your cryptocurrency on the exchange. In other words, you don't have a, uh, safe, a safe deposit box within somebody else's vault. You have your own, you have your own vault and then you move you move your currency in and out with this exchange. Is that is that an okay way of looking at it? So, you know, as a as a layman who's getting into it and they want to control their own uh, destiny, they want to hold their cryptocurrency. How would they do that and still operate within exchanges? So that's actually a really interesting question because, regardless of whether you want to go, uh, so so there are two kind of routes if you want to be in control of your funds, and I think you know, most of us really want 
control of our money. So you could go the simple way, which is to install a wallet on your computer or on your cell phone. Then the other option is a hardware wallet. So I think for simplicity's sake, we'll use the one with the nice interface, uh, interface which is on, on your mobile phone. So you could download a, a wallet. Um, one of my favorites on my iPhone is one called Blockstream Aqua. Um, I think they have an Android version, which is called Green. And they're really simple wallets. And the process of setting up a wallet is essentially that you're going to be presented with 12 or 24 words. And this is basically a, this is what creates or what accesses, allows you access to a private key, but they've made it a lot simpler. So before you'd have this really long string of numbers and letters all jumbled up and it would make no sense and it's not really human readable. Whereas now they've gone the route when you generate your private key, you're generating it using uh, what is called a mnemonic seed, which will either be 12 words or 24 words. And like you said, it's really important, don't lose this. Um, because if you do, that money is gone forever. Uh, it it would be, it would take a massive amount of computing power to kind of crack uh, this key. So the first thing you'll do when you set up a wallet is you'll get these 12 words or 24 words and you'll you'll need to store them somewhere. So the first thing to absolutely not do is to type it onto your computer or store it in your iCloud or Google Drive document in some Word document because that's quite unsecure. The safest way to do it is um, write it down on a piece of paper and put it in a safety deposit box or a safe. And again, this really depends on how much money you're going to keep in the wallet. If you're going to keep, you know, 100 bucks in there, maybe it's not super important that, you know, this has Fort Knox level security. Um, so it's, it's sort of important to remember that. So you'll set up, you'll get your 12 words, you'll write them down, and sometimes they'll have some sort of 2FA procedure where you could sort of further secure the wallet with uh, a, a 2FA password, um, or they'll give you the option to create a password for the wallet just to keep that secure. So then you'll have essentially your, your very first crypto wallet. And usually within these apps, you can kind of go into the go really deep into the settings, and you'll be able to find that really long string of numbers and letters, which would be your private key. But it's not really necessary if you have your, your 12 or 24 words, you're perfectly safe. Um, I do have one specific question. Uh, so, so the the company you gave that's an app on an iPhone is Blockstream Aqua. Okay, I, th I think that's what I heard you say. That's correct. And we're talking about this, I believe, mnemonic the this 12, 12 word twenty four word code, which is now your um, your crypto key to get to your crypto uh, vault, if you will. Is is that an okay way of explaining it? Yeah, that's correct. And you you only need this if you lose your wallet. So for general day-to-day -day use, you won't need access to this. You'd only really need it if your phone broke or you lost your phone or something like that. I guess that's that's where my question is, is you say don't store this on your Google Drive, your um, these other methods of storing it. But wouldn't if somebody uh, – came across your phone, wouldn't they then have access to your wallet? And then kind of secondarily, what, what made me interrupt you was, what if this 
Blockstream Aqua company, you know, apps are 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 fly by night these days. What if they they get blocked from the app store and they don't exist anymore? You know, in the future, you still have the if if my understanding's correctly, your vault isn't necessarily tied to Blockstream Aqua, but then how would you find it? That's a great question. So to answer the first part is uh, generally you'll set up a 2FA code or an additional password on in the app itself. Uh, you could also use your face ID, um, you know, or, or your phone's pin as that extra layer. So even if someone got your, even if someone got your phone, if you add that extra layer of uh, password protection in, generally you, you'll probably be okay. Um, un unless you know your your password's one two three four or something like that. Um, to answer the other side, so uh, I I I don't think Blockstream in particular is a fly by night. Um, I, I I choose my recommendation very very carefully. Um, but if for some reason they went under or something happened and the business disappeared, uh, this twelve or twenty four word fr uh, phrase is it's agnostic. So you would be able to use those same 12 or 24 words on an entirely different Bitcoin wallet and type those words in and have access to your funds uh, as normal. So there's no, there, there's sort of this really good consensus between uh, crypto developers, regardless of the network, so Bitcoin, Ethereum, et cetera, where your mnemonic phase, phrase is, is going to be completely agnostic to whichever wallet you use. There are some exceptions, but generally those uh, the exceptions to the rules are uh, multi-coin wallets. So that would be a wallet that um, generates a, a mnemonic seed for multiple blockchains. Um, and there are some examples of that. But if you're going for just a, a, a dead simple Bitcoin wallet, an Ethereum wallet, et cetera, um, there'll be no issue with you. You could decide you don't like the app, but your money's on there. You can delete the app type those words into uh, an entirely different blockchain blockchain wallet and your money will be there your private key will be there and everything will be fine okay now thank you for letting me interrupt you and i hope you can remember where you're at but i do have one more question to interrupt and this is this is another thing that's key to layman's that they get a little confused by and I want to understand this myself. So we've we've already interjected this Blockstream Aqua wallet. I think everyone can grasp that concept. It's an app on your phone you can use. If you want to use a desktop version, that's fine. But phone, wallet, got it. This is something that 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 gets confusing. Say somebody, uh, we've got people that philosophically are uh, it, more advanced than they are with the mechanisms of using. Um, cryptocurrency. So for example, they know about Bitcoin, maybe they even have Bitcoin on an exchange, but what they really want is they want to buy this altcoin that they're interested in. From what I understand, and you can help us with this, would they need a separate Blockstream Aqua app to open? Is it separate keys? How does how does that work when you're you're trying to simplify it for us with just Bitcoin, but at the same time, with all these cryptocurrencies popping up, we have to educate people on how they're going to hodl uh, more than one cryptocurrency. Absolutely, and this is where things get really complicated because you have the, the, the Bitcoin blockchain, 
you've got, as an example, the Ethereum blockchain. On the Ethereum blockchain, there are hundreds of cryptocurrencies that exist that are built on top of Ethereum. So if you had some Bitcoin and you wanted to own uh, Paxos Gold, as an example, right? So Paxos Gold is a tokenized gold. It's a one-to-one backed um, gold token. One of these tokens um, is related to a 400-ounce gold bar that's held in a vault in London. Um, it's done through a regulated firm, so it's it's appears to all be above board. I don't have any sort of skepticisms on that. But back to the point. So if you wanted to use your Bitcoin to buy this, you would unfortunately have to get another wallet to hold this uh, this other token. In the case of Pax Gold, you would get an Ethereum wallet, but it does get more complicated where if you decided that for some reason you were interested in uh, Ripple or XRP, that would be an entirely different wallet as well. So you might end up with all of these different wallets for different assets, depending on whether they're built on someone else's blockchain or their own, and obviously what the purpose of that token is. Um, And this is kind of where exchanges are very convenient, where you can store all of these different assets in an account, but then the sort of the trade-off is, is that you don't really control your money. Okay. And would this Blockstream Aqua, is that is that an app that's only specific to Bitcoin? So now you'd need to find another app that you would hodl your, uh, uh, whatever that token is that's tied to gold on the Ethereum blockchain? Uh, that's correct. So Blockstream Aqua is interesting because it's, uh, it's entirely t- tied to Bitcoin, but there is all... <laughs> We're going to get really complicated here. So there's, there are basically scaling layers on Bitcoin. So Bitcoin as a blockchain itself is really slow. It takes, if I wanted to send you some money, optimistically, 10 minutes. Realistically, I did a transaction. I don't want to pay high fees. I did a transaction from one wallet to another wallet a few days ago. It took 10 hours to do this transaction, which is better than a bank in some cases, but uh, not not great for the crypto standard. So what Blockstream has done is they've built an additional layer called Liquid, where much like on Ethereum, you can tokenize something else. So like uh, Paxos tokenized gold on top of Ethereum, you can do the same thing on Bitcoin, but there is a requirement that anything you tokenize is backed by Bitcoin. So it's kind of a little different. It's kind of like if you look at uh, before the gold standard was was uh, I don't know how to say it politely, eradicated. Um, Every dollar that you had was backed by physical gold. And in the same way on this liquid network on Bitcoin, every single asset that is tokenized is backed by Bitcoin. So with this liquid network, it allows for really quick transactions of two minutes. And some assets are on this this, uh, liquid network. So for example, there is a token called Tether, uh, which you may or may not be familiar with. Tether is a stable coin, so that means it's pegged to the dollar in value. And that basically allows you within your Bitcoin wallet to hold essentially a dollar balance. You can also do this on Ethereum, though, with also Tether, because Tether uh, 
is a company and as a company their approach is to sort of be blockchain agnostic and allow their tokens to be minted on multiple multiple networks but sort of to get back to the point blockstream uh, blockstream is is very much a bitcoin wallet and blockstream is very much a bitcoin forward company um they i don't think would ever uh, allow any other assets on their wallet or support them um you can look then at tokens on ethereum um, a good wallet there would be MetaMask. MetaMask is quite interesting because MetaMask can be a Chrome browser plugin on your computer, uh, which can synchronize to the app on your phone. So you can essentially, it's a little more mobile. You can transact on your computer from the same wallet that you're transacting on your phone. Okay, for the sake of this show, and, and thank you for helping us go down this wormhole of complexity, um, I, I sensed people's eyes rolling over. Um, so let's try to get back. Let's try to get back to the basics. So what we've what we've now determined is that we can buy different cryptocurrencies on an exchange, but yes, you would need to get different wallets if you want to hold and possess and operate on your own, you know, essentially own your own vault, you would have to get different wallets if, say, you own Ethereum or, say, you own Bitcoin. These would be separate wallets on your phone or desktop um, that would have different keys um, or phrases uh, to access those wallets. Correct. And if you... Uh, I'll give you another sort of suggestion if... If you are interested in holding multiple assets, a good wallet to look at is Exodus. Exodus supports multiple blockchains, um, but they are limited in terms of the tokens on top of that blockchain. So on Ethereum, literally thousands of different tokens, most of them entirely worthless, uh, people messing around or, or, or guess, you know, experimenting and things like that, or some of them have just projects that have died. Um, whereas on Exodus, they sort of focus on maybe 20 or 30 different uh, cryptocurrencies, but you would then only need one key um, to access this wallet. And I think they have a really nice feature where if you lose access, you can actually, through uh, um, a backup process, get this via email as well. Okay. How can we get you back um on track from where I interrupted. I'm I'm already swimming in all these different concepts, trying to, trying to hold on. We're we're all trying to hold on to this boat that you're creating uh, to take us down the river of cryptocurrency. We're 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 still hanging on, but we're uh, we're taking we're taking on water. So so how can we get back to your original um, thought that you were going to go down in explaining this to us? Yeah. So I mean, let's take it right back to to how wallet. Is set up so we just kind of set this wallet up and now you may want to transact with it so in this case most people probably would buy some crypto on an exchange and send it to themselves and this is where things get kind of a little messy because fees are kind of less obvious especially where so a lot of exchanges will just give you a fee denoted in the cryptocurrency right so i want to withdraw some Bitcoin, and they're going to give me a fee and say it's 0.305 Bitcoin, and that's the cost of it. And there's no like, there's no basic way of me to go, how many dollars is this worth? And I think Coinbase does it well, where they kind of are very upfront about this, and they'll go, this is how, this is the Bitcoin that's going to come 
as a fee and this is the dollar value of it, which is great. So when you have your wallet, most of them are really simple. There's a send button and there's a receive button. And for you to transfer, you know, you would send some dollars to an exchange and you'd buy the cryptocurrency that interests you. And now you're ready to, to hold it yourself. You click on the receive button and it's going to give you usually a QR code and then a long string of numbers and letters. Those numbers and letters correspond directly to that QR code. And those numbers and letters is what is known as your public key or your address. These are usually disposable. Um, so every time that you receive funds into your wallet, your private key remains the same, but your public key, usually for privacy purposes, will update. And this is an interesting, uh, it's an interesting idea because if you think about it for convenience, you'd like to have just, you know, like your bank account, just one number that, and you can always use the same number over and over again. But because blockchains, most of them are, you know, with the exception of privacy coins, but Bitcoin, Ethereum, et cetera, they're all public. So if the person who's sending you the funds decided to look up that public key and use the same public key over and over again, they'd be able to see your entire transaction history because you've only used one key. So one of the features that a lot of uh, non-custodial wallets, which would be wallets that you are in complete control over, they generate a new public key every time. And you can generate millions of public keys that are linked to the exact same private key. So that's something sort of to bear in mind when you're making this transfer is that it might not be the same depending on the wallet that you have. It might not be the same every time you want to receive new funds. Whereas on an exchange, it's almost always going to be the exact same address. Okay, I just want to make sure that everybody's uh, caught up and up to speed. You said something there that, that might have confused me, might have confused a layman a little bit. When we're talking about um, the public keys that come about and we're transferring money or we're uh, sending coins to addresses, uh, if, I, if I look at my hands right now, I've got my, my vault my, my private wallet in the left hand, and I've got my exchange in the right hand. And the way you explained it was initiating from my left hand to the right hand. And I just want to make sure, is that the only way it works, that you have to um, create that key by clicking receive? Or does it work uh, every, every which way? The, the right hand can share with the left hand, left hand can share with the right hand. You can send money from the exchange um, help us understand that just a little bit better. Yeah, so absolutely. I, I think I digressed there a little bit um, to talk about the, the key generation. But yeah, I mean, a lot of people sort of get very scared as soon as that happens. This is not the same as last time. So I thought I'd bring that up. But yeah, absolutely. So, so in your private wallet, you'd click on receive. It would give you this, this long string of numbers and letters. And then in Coinbase, you would click on send. And... In that flow, they would ask you to input the receive address that you've generated on your phone into Coinbase's interface, which would be, um, you know, just sort of as a, I think it just asks you straight out what is uh, the address. And then the next field would be how much do you want to send? Um, so, yeah, you can, you would need to um, generate the address 
on the receiving side, and then you need to input it on the sending side to send it through. So I know with Coinbase, it's really simple. You can do one of two things, um, and the exact terminology is enter email or address. So I think Coinbase has some other interesting tech there where you can send Bitcoin to a friend via an email, and they kind of, I don't know, probably get you to sign up that route. So the option is enter an email or address. And address is where I think now things are getting a little confusing because I think you maybe were exposed to, to crypto a while ago and you use the term key and key is sort of a little bit of an outdated terminology for now what is used as an address. So, I mean, that might be a point of confusion as well. So again, you're on your private one, you click on receive, you get your, your address, you'd copy that to your to your computer or your Coinbase app, and you'd put that in the to field. You type in the amount. Coinbase lets you type this in in dollars as well as in Bitcoin if you prefer using the Bitcoin amount. And you click on continue, and then it would send it from them with some fees across to your wallet. If you wanted to send it back as well, so hypothetically you have some Bitcoin and you'd like to buy another asset on Coinbase or any exchange really, you do it in the exact same way. So on the exchange side, you would click on receive or deposit sometimes is the terminology that's used. Um, sometimes withdraw is the terminology that's also used on a on a uh, exchange instead of send. Um, but yeah, if you wanted to send it from your private wallet to an exchange, you would click on deposit or receive. You would then essentially go through the exact same process where the exchange would generate a QR code which would make it a lot easier if you're on your phone because you can just click on send from your phone and scan the QR code. Um, but you could also just copy the key from the exchange, paste it into your wallet, and then send it in the same way. So the method is basically exactly the same, whether you're going to an exchange or from an exchange. Um, I don't know if everybody caught that there, but apparently I... I aged myself within this young crypto environment <laughs> by using the term keys. I aged myself. That's how old I am. I'm still using this darn term keys. So I will try to catch on, Tian, that it's now address. It's a it's a badge of honor. <laughs> okay. What keeps jumping out to me is somebody's going to scream, why do I want my own wallet? Why don't I just use the exchange? Because one thing I noticed there is even though I'm I'm taking cryptocurrency from an exchange and sending it to myself, there's a fee. What I would assume is when I'm sending the cryptocurrency from my wallet then back to the exchange, uh, if if that's your method of how you spend your Bitcoin is buying and trading and you need an exchange, I would assume there's going to be a fee there as well. So somebody might be screaming into their speakers, well, why don't I just use the exchange and not care about all these addresses uh, or, or as old man Jay says, these keys, and I can avoid these fees? So I suppose it depends on your goals. If If you're going to attempt to trade often or frequently, an exchange is probably a better place for you. If you're planning on holding these assets for a longer period of time, it's maybe better to keep this in your own custody. Um, and I mean, exchanges are, are vulnerable. Right? They've got massive targets on their backs with people who, 
you know, very clearly want to get into their systems and 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 steal their assets. I mean, is it like hundreds of millions of dollars last year were stolen through hacks on exchanges. Um, so it, it, it's kind of, you know, there's there's pros and cons to both sides. If you want convenience, an exchange is absolutely the best way to go. Um, but if you have, and and obviously if the, the, the value that you're exchanging is relatively low and you want high trading frequency, you're still going to be paying fees uh, on every trade that you do. So there's kind of no way to escape <laughs> escape the fee the fee game. Um, if you're if you're looking at holding for a longer term, or you know maybe you're like me, I'll do a trade, you know every few weeks or every few months even. Sometimes I'm completely out of the market, or you know I'm in for a longer time than I'd like to be in. Um, th- then you're probably okay just holding it yourself. So it really is uh, it, it's function over anything else it's it's what you really want to do there's there's a massive convenience element to exchanges um i think coinbase in particular does have a little bit of insurance it's incredibly difficult for exchanges to be insured um so there is that risk but there's also a risk that you might lose your private keys and lose all your money or lose your phone so i suppose there's risk on both sides so we've talked about that a person who wants to invest in different cryptocurrencies, it sounds like they're going to have to have a knowledge of which blockchain the cryptocurrency that they're interested in is on. For example, you explained to us that Ethereum uh, blockchain cryptocurrencies might be able to use a the same wallet, but you wouldn't be able to use a uh, Bitcoin wallet with an Ethereum cryptocurrency. Um, but there is uh, the wallet that you mentioned, Exodus, which tries. It sounds like they tried to bring. They tried to develop a wallet uh, that uses the top cryptocurrencies. Yeah, is that is that accurate again? So whether whether it's on uh, Bitcoin blockchain or Ethereum blockchain, Exodus tries to hit the top the top coins. That's correct. So Exodus Exodus has uh, a little over 130 different coins that you can you can hold in an Exodus wallet. So I think. If you're looking at kind of diversifying a lot, it's probably a good wallet for you to have if you want to hold those funds yourself. Um, whereas if you're a, a little bit more conservative, perhaps, and you want less assets or less exposure to lots of assets, um, then you might opt for, you know, a, a blockchain-specific application. Um, and again, it's very difficult to to kind of get into to all of the nitty gritty little nuances of every different cryptocurrency. So, you know, there are, for example, cryptocurrencies that uh, increase the number of units of this cryptocurrency that you have if you're holding it in their wallet, um, and that's called staking, where you're essentially not moving funds and you're rewarded for that. The, the, like some cryptocurrencies are very very gamified in that way. Um, so it's it's quite difficult to kind of give a blanket statement about about all of them because some of them are really really unique um, and others are are really really simple like bitcoin is as complicated as it is it's probably the simple, simplest cryptocurrency that exists because it has one purpose whereas ethereum is trying to do money it's trying to do computing it's trying to do uh, tokenization of all kinds of assets property 
physical assets, um, dig- digital like baseball cards. Um, so it does get very, very complicated, um, and that makes investing very difficult as well. So how how do you decide which cryptocurrency to buy? Do you buy something because it's really cheap? It's a common mistake where people will look at things like Ripple, XRP, and they'll go, oh, well, this is just a few cents. Bitcoin is, you know, $48,000. Can Ripple do this, you know, at a few cents maybe? Because Bitcoin was once a few cents and now it's, you know, $50,000. Is this possible? Um, and then people kind of bet on these these little coins and you know, sometimes they, they just don't have the the functionality in them or they overcomplicate things. Um, so it's really, really difficult. And then technologically, they're all quite different as well. And then you have to sort of, you know, you're, you're, you're kind of betting on all of these very, very different horses. Um, and it's it's so, so difficult to, to wrap your head around. Um, so my not financial advice is always is is to try and keep it really really simple at first, and then kind of as you as you understand the one as you understand Bitcoin, move to Ethereum. Ethereum's a whole lot more complicated than than Bitcoin is, and then once you're you know at Ethereum, maybe you want to look at some other type of cryptocurrency. The other sort of way that you can look at it is of function, right? So there are cryptocurrencies that focus on Payments. There are cryptocurrencies that focus on things like smart contracts. There are uh, cryptocurrencies that focus on things like decentralized finance, which you know works with like lending and borrowing and you know earning earning a yield on on this. Um, so it it really like it it it's almost a full time job to to try and assess these things. Um, so I, my advice is always is, is start really simple and and wrap your head around that and then move from there because betting on something simply because of price uh, a price point and thinking that this is really cheap i can get lots of this in terms of quantity i can get hundreds of thousands of this token uh doesn't always translate to you know millions of dollars in five or ten years time um sometimes it's you know, completely infeasible. And I'll I'll use Ripple's XRP as an example. So everyone thinks, okay, cool, this is this is really cheap. I think it's I don't know, it's definitely below 50 cents. It's maybe 30 cents or something at the moment. Um, and in the height of the of the last bull market in, in 2017, there were these, in my opinion, insane people going, Ripple is gonna hit ten dollars. Now, Ripple had there's a hundred billion Ripple tokens. Multiply that by a factor of ten. It's, it's like this infeasible valuation of a, of a currency. Um, whereas Bitcoin has twenty-one million, and that's all there will ever be. Um, so th- there are a lot of sort of th- there's a lot of game theory that sort of needs to go behind making an investment decision when it comes to these things. So I mean, you can you, you can kind of invest based on on. On principle, I suppose, and I think a lot of Bitcoin investors invest on principle. You can invest on technology, um, like Ethereum. I think technologically, Ethereum is really interesting. Um, or you can invest, I suppose, on on hype or or, or you know opportunity, um, where you see a lot of interest in a certain currency. It's it's currently very cheap, and it just you know sort of goes parabolic. Um, but it never stays parabolic. 
Okay. So one of the things that uh, you explained to us was this this public this public address that you create when uh, when you want to receive when you want to receive um, let's just say Bitcoin cryptocurrency. So this is a temporary address, but but does it ever go away? And, and I'll, I'll give you an example. I've got a a friend of mine um, named Tom Luongo, and I had him on. Uh, um, just a few weeks ago on my podcast, where we talked about um, the sovereignty of the individual and anarcho-capitalism as defined within the libertarian space. I enjoyed that one. And he's he's very much into Chris, cryptocurrency. And when you look at one of his episodes, uh, Tom has a bunch of addresses at the bottom of his episode. And what I found was strange while you were talking was, you know, so I assume you, you click on that address or if you want to send money, you would just, uh, and I even tested this out. I sent Tom some, some Bitcoin. I pressed send. Uh, I used the key that he, excuse me, the address uh, that he left in his uh, blog and sent him some Bitcoin. But what you said was that these addresses, they change. Do they Do they change when you when you essentially uh, create a new receive, um, when you press that receive button, you get a different address, but they never really go away. They're always going to that private, to that private uh, uh, vault. Yeah, so, so that's absolutely right. And, and maybe I explained it really badly. So even though it generates a new address for you, the old ones are still valid. So in... In his case, he's he's displaying this out of convenience. He's going, here's one address. You can send it to this address always. And that's great because you have this wonderful transaction history, right? If it's donations or whatever it is, you can see every single donation. And that's really nice, uh, you know, especially if it's donations because people will look at what's in that wallet or what's, ever, what's been in that wallet ever. Um, the... the, the it's a feature on apps to generate new ones. And that it's purely to sort of make your transactions a little more private because, and one of the misconceptions with Bitcoin is, is that it's this private or, well, I think it's less now, but certainly in the past it was, this is the super anonymous uh, cryptocurrency and no one can, no one can track anything. And we found that absolutely you can track these things. Um, so, it's it's purely a privacy thing. So, for example, um, if I was to send you some Bitcoin and you know I you gave me your your address and I went logged onto a blockchain explorer and I looked at that address and I looked at the balances and I saw well wow you know Jay's got Jay's got five hundred Bitcoins in here. Um, that gives me an immediate you know if I'm a bad guy that gives me an amazing incentive where I know exactly how much money you have. Um, and I might try and take that from you. So it, it makes it a little dangerous, and it's it's purely just a feature that that's there and it's available. But those old addresses they never die because they're they're completely linked to that private key, that private vault. So um, you know, I started this with that analogy where Coinbase has the vault, and there are all these you know there's a thousand safety deposit box in there, and each of their customers gets one of these boxes. But when you generate a wallet, you've got the vault and you've got, you know, it's not a thousand, it's millions and millions of safety deposit boxes. And that's all that this app is doing. It's just giving you 
one of those boxes, but you've still got the key to the vault. Thank you. Thank you so much, Tian, for helping us understand uh, this blockchain technology, cryptocurrency, how to function within the environment. The more and more people hear this, then the more and more they will be comfortable uh, dealing in this. And I think, uh, you know, if the last decade um, gives us any advice to the future, it's not going away. And it seems that I think that a lot of people are terrified that they're being left behind or they're being left out. And so my whole goal to this episode was to help them, help them catch up um, so that they can participate. Now, one thing when I was doing my research into yourself and the company Revix, which I'm going to apologize to everyone in the United States right away, if you look up Revix.com, you're going to get very excited, but they are not available in the United States as of yet. Um, but Tian, what, what essentially you do is you simplify um, investing for people and allow them to invest money with you. You're, you're basically a fund and you uh, manage the fund and, and create all these baskets that are available to people. Well, one of the baskets, one of the fund baskets that I um, absolutely was shocked when I saw thinking that you're all cryptocurrency was one of the baskets was artificial intelligence. And I, when it comes to cryptocurrency and why I'm involved is because I don't think this is going away. I think this is part of the future. And I think that it's important to participate in technologies that are the future. Well, almost everything these days, when it comes to these large scale um, societal systems have AI at their heart. And I've also tried in the past to invest in AI. Uh, I'm not a I'm not an investment advisor. I'm just a normal guy. So so this conversation, from my perspective, um, is not meant to give advice to anybody. But I invested in Nvidia for not for uh, the cryptocurrency space, which which was a little tangential uh, side note that they make uh, the processors that a lot of people like for the mining, but. Uh, because of their AI technology, and I saw that investment. Um, I think it. I think it actually tripled for me in just a, a year and a half. Well, I've pulled out of that investment because it, it seemed a little long in the tooth. It seemed overcooked. But I'm curious from somebody like you that is head of product at Revix, and you've got this wonderful AI basket. Do you have any companies that are kind of on that cutting edge of? AI that a layman like me may not have heard of um, that you can you can point us to that we can do our own research on. Um, yeah, so I'm not a financial advisor, so please do your research on these. Um, but a, a, a couple that I'm kind of quite interested in, and um, you know, within our AI bundle, they do feature there um, would would probably be Cyberdyne. Um, it's a Japanese, uh, Japanese AI company, um, as well as uh, Renishaw, which is a, a PLC. So that's um, that's based in uh, in the UK, I believe. Yes, in the UK. And uh, I mean, these are relatively cheap stocks at the moment. Um, I think Cyberdyne's under ten dollars. Uh, Renishaw's a little under a hundred. Um, and then um, 
another one that I've that's caught my attention recently uh, is a company called AI Inside Inc. Um, they're a Japanese company as well, doing really really interesting um, stuff in AI and robotics. Uh, their share price is a little more expensive. I think it's about four hundred dollars roughly. Um, those are ones that I would definitely sort of read up on and uh, and look at some of the the. Um, AI Inside is uh, they've got a, a very very interesting uh, YouTube channel uh, which shows off some of their tech um, and uh, I'm a massive tech geek so I, I love watching these things um, and, and those would sort of be three that um, that are in the the AI bundle that we offer um, that I would look at um, I'm not sure obviously if these stocks are available in the US I would assume you probably could could get your hands on them. You bet. Thank you so much for the help, Tian. You have a wonderful day. You too, and thanks so much for having me, man. Oh, man, that is the show, folks. I hope this helped. Uh, it was meant to be uh, kind of a college class in cryptocurrency. I was thinking 101 at the start of this. I know we got into some e intermediate-level coursework there, so maybe it's a little 101 with some 201. I really do appreciate my guests that came on to help us understand cryptocurrency a little bit better. I really hope that you grabbed some nuggets out of this. This was an important podcast for me. I want the Conservative Hippie Podcast to always give good information. Um, and I think that a lot of people out there are struggling to understand cryptocurrency and to get into it. And so I hope this was a bit of a helping hand to get you more familiar with the terminology, where to go to initially start dipping your toes um, in this new currency, this, this decentralized currency. I really went overboard on the show notes, so please check those show notes. They've got all kinds of links, including links to my guests. Um, they were both very warm and inviting of additional questions. Um, so there you go. That's it. My voice is getting a bit strained. Uh, my head hurts from thinking of all these concepts. We out. Let's be friends. We're all on this cosmic spaceship together. Subscribe and share the Conservative Hippie Podcast. Visit our sponsors, SmokeAndJays.com. Everything for your smoke and lifestyle. StonerHoroscopes.com. Adora Zen dishes cosmic vibes for the stoner at heart. KickFromTheSpot.com. Soccer is American.